following program, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, is brought to you by our team, consisting of our producer, Charlie Deist, our sound engineer, David Springer, our social media associate producer, Allison Kelly, and in Germany, our editor, Florian Furon. This program brings you a wide variety of people from science, from medicine, from researching various areas of our universe. Health, psychological, and physical is part of what we bring to you. We give a platform to those who might not ordinarily get a platform on normal media. Please go to our website, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Our programs are archived, and we welcome you to subscribe and be part of our community. And now for the program. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance physical and mental well-being and encourage community. And when I say encourage community, I say that because I believe that humans are basically friendly tribal animals. We enjoy being with one another. We like hanging out together. And when we associate in small enough groups where we know each other by name or at least by face, we're really very cooperative and we're collaborative. However, we must also be mindful that a very small percentage of us are very different. That small percentage are avaricious predators and they're very dangerous. They would have us be their subjects rather than us being the citizens that we are. We must be mindful of those people while we remain loving, collaborative, and cooperative with each other. In the words of one of my heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I bring you Yahan Kamsadeza. He is a researcher, a scientist, and the author of a book, The Site. Psilocybin Connection, which we're going to be talking about today in some depth. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Yahan. Thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here, and I loved your introduction. Well, thank you very much. Yahan, where are you right now? I'm currently in uh, Oakland, California. Okay, so we're both in California. I'm in Northern California. I'm actually sitting in my office at Wilbur Hot Springs, which is about two hours North, you've been here, of course. That's where we met. Totally. That's right. Very lovely place. So, Yahan, you're a scientist researcher, and there are so many things that you could have researched in this world. How did you select psilocybin as your focus? Yeah, thanks. Great question. First, I do love all the psychedelics. I think there's incredible healing and expansion in all these compounds. But psilocybin was the first one to really, you can say, in a sense, wake me up and help me heal. I was a suicidal, depressed teen, an atheist. Uh, and at 18 years old, I took some mushrooms and radically changed my life. Gave me this experience of spirituality, of interconnectedness. Put me on a different trajectory. And during my master's and doctor's, there's a focus in consciousness. And I continued my research into psychedelics because not only found them the most healing for me, but I actually think they're most transformative method we have in all of humanity. So it was a very worthy place to place all my attention into. So 
You started to research and got involved as a scientist with psilocybin because of your own personal journey is what you're telling us. So much of my personal journey, but then the scientific, you know, evidence and results have also been astounding, you know. So there were so many routes of why I chose this particular medicine. And in terms of just evolution for our species, I think they're also the most you know, say effective compounds that can help our brains kind of heal and come to our deeper essence, as you're saying, that we're a loving tribal culture underneath all of this. Well, you're referencing research, which you're saying has been profound. Let's talk a bit about the uh, famous study at Johns Hopkins that was done by Roland Griffiths. Mm -hmm. What's your take on that research? What do you want to tell us about it? No, I really love that some of the first research we've been doing during this century has been on near end of life anxiety. And there's so many reasons why I see psilocybin is especially helpful for this. I think a lot of us can probably say that the greatest fear we have ultimately is of death. And if I sat with that over the years, why is death so scary? I think because some of us unconsciously assume death is this eternal aloneness that we lose everything we know, including ourselves and everybody. And that's very frightening. You know, some people envision it like this vast emptiness, this blackness. And what we see with psilocybin is that ultimately what we experience when we kind of dissolve the sense of self, we see that we're deeply interconnected as a part of all of reality. And this connection is eternal. And it's the ultimate source of bliss to have this kind of sense of unity and love with everything. And so once people have this point of reference, this experience of their nature, all the fears around the illusion of our own death kind of just naturally dissolve. And we're able to be present here in our daily lives and exchange love with one another more freely. In your research, have you discovered answers to the question, why does this particular mushroom have this kind of positive effect? Do we know what it's doing to us to create such positivity in us? to give us a sense of connection with one another and a sense of connection with the planet? Do we know why this is happening inside of us, Johan? Yeah. You know, I feel I've come to, in 20 years of looking at it, some very good answers to that. You know, I think some part of it's a great mystery. But if we look at psilocybin itself, you know, it grows out of the fungi kingdom. The kingdom's been around for about 2.5 billion years. So we're talking about the kinds of organisms that really created the soil for all of the biosphere to evolve. Our entire evolutionary trajectory has been on top of this living network. And out of this really intelligent, complex network that unites all the plants in the environment comes the mushroom, the cap and stem formation. And in it, some of these psilocybin which docks into the 5-HT2A serotonin receptors in our brain, sometimes better than serotonin itself, creates a hyper-connected brain state, expands our consciousness to have a sense of ecological awakening and empathy with all of the environment. So I believe these compounds grow in the ecosystem to kind of regulate consciousness. The same way within our body, there's hormones and compounds that create a state of homeostasis in our body. The ecosystem's always trying to do the same thing. And I'm partly pulling from like Gaia theory, the idea that there's chemicals in the environment that try to regulate all the organisms. And so it helps us see that how deeply intelligent and interconnected we are with all of life. Give us a deeper dive, if you will, that expression that everybody is using nowadays, so I, I couldn't resist using it. Give us a deeper dive into interconnected brain state. What do you mm. mean by that? That was a very yeah. interesting choice of words. 
Yes, totally. So we can look at this from the neurological route, but then also from the route of just direct consciousness and experience. In terms of the neurology, what we see is what we call the default mode network in the brain that activates when we think of, you could say, the ego self, the I, 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 me, 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 self-focus. That acts as a repressive function for the rest of our brain. And this network, the default mode network, is, um, you could say, overly dense in people with anxiety and depression. One way to say that is people that are in pain. So if you're like constantly in pain and somebody's pinching you, you can't help but think of that pain and think of yourself. So when that sense of self finally relaxes, this kind of just really worn out network, the whole brain begins to hyperconnect. And we can say that ego self is like a very loud voice that represses all the other voices inside. Once that quiets down and the person's relaxed and in peace and feeling safe, all the symphony internally you know, that all the subconscious and the unconscious gives a factor arise. So what we tend to see is kind of like a unified experience within the brain, but that correlates with the unified experience people are having with themselves, with the environment, with the cosmos. Now, you mentioned earlier uh, psilocybin's use in end of life. Talk mm-hmm. to us more about psilocybin and psychedelic use during the end-of-life transition. You gave us, like, some headlines, and I'd like to hear some more depth about that, please. Absolutely. I feel I've been honored to help many people that have come in because of a fear of death Um, and across the entire spectrum of age, whether they have cancer, they're later in life, or even there's certain woundings early in life, and the people are around in their 20s, and they're kind of paralyzed around this daily fear of death. Many times within just a session or two, that whole thing dissolves there comes to be a deeper trust in the cosmos with this whole process of life that the contractions we have, this hypervigilant, finally relaxes. Um, They see that they're deeply safe. Something I personally saw with my psilocybin experiences is that an aspect of us is eternal, meaning before the Big Bang, after death, and that part of awareness is always there. You can get there through meditation, psychedelics. And as we relax into that nature, there's, there's just no more fear Fear ultimately seems that ultimately steps from this f- feeling of separation. When we're feeling alone, we have to fend for ourselves, become overly self-reliant. There's tremendous fear. But once we feel like we deeply belong and we're really connected with everything, the very feeling of fear itself dissipates. And for many of us, fear is paralyzing. So a lot of people that have been given a terminal illness, they have six months or two years to live because they might not have worked through all the baggage of the ideas that come with death, they become paralyzed with a small amount of time they have left. You know, they have six months to live and they can't even enjoy their life. They're paralyzed at home. And this frees them from that. So they're able to enjoy their remaining time here on, the, on Earth. You're saying that this fear of death mm-hmm. that is paralyzing to people, you believe is a fear of being alone or of going into nothingness or of some kind of disconnectedness? Is that what you're finding with your patients? I am, absolutely. And the more they fall, feel deeper into love and connection, that fear itself just naturally withers away. Interesting. I, I was uh, faced with, uh, with two very strongly possible uh, terminal illnesses this past year myself. I don't know if I uh-huh. call them illnesses, but they were conditions. And um, I didn't have that kind of reaction. And uh, so uh, maybe I'm an idiosyncratic case. Uh, in one case, I was uh, facing uh, metastatic melanoma. And uh, I looked it up on the Google, and it said, well, you could be uh, 
dead within six weeks. Uh, and in the, at the very same time, I was uh, told that I was in heart failure and that uh, my heart might uh, just uh, stop pro uh, providing the oxygen necessary for life uh, at any second. And, um, Johan, I just went about my daily business. Uh, I, I didn't stop doing this program. I didn't stop writing books. I didn't stop seeing patients. I didn't stop exercising, eating, making love, and having a normal day. Because what I said to myself was, you know, nothing bad's happening to me right now, and they're telling me something bad might happen any minute, but at this moment, nothing bad's happening, so I'm just going to go on with my life as it is. Mm -hmm. And I don't relate to death in the way that you're describing these folks relate to death. And I really, in my 60 years of clinical experience, I don't have experience with people uh, in end-of-life transition. So it's, it's an area that's outside of my expertise, though I have expertise in many areas, and I've gone from area to area during the 60 years, chemical dependence, severe schizophrenia, couples therapy, group therapy, uh, and various other uh, aspects of our work. But end of life has never been something. And, you know, it, it, quite in all candor, it always seems to me like we make too big a deal of death. Mm. It, it's like we're born, we have a life, and we die. I mean, it's part of the developmental process. And so, you know, I sort of scratch my head through my career and say, how much time do I want to spend of my precious life dealing with my death. I, th I think I'd rather live my life, and when death comes, it'll be over, that'll be it. Whatever happens, happens. If there's a next, great. If there's not, okay, and that's the end of it. And so I didn't really go through, you know, these, these various uh, uh, anxieties, depressions, and so on whatsoever that you're talking about, though it got my dabba down for, a, 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 you know, at first it was a bit of a shock. Uh, I, I had positive endings, by the way, to both of them. I managed to uh, get the cancer out of my body through surgery, and uh, I got my heart back into normal condition through a combination of uh, hyper-exercise, nutrition, and some medicine. So I'm in great heart shape and without cancer now, so the, you know, the story has a happy ending. But I'm trying to put my story in context of what I'm hearing from you and other end-of-life uh, practitioners of the tremendous amount of fear that we have generated about death in our culture. Certainly, it, we're not born afraid of death. So evidently, Jahan, we're teaching ourselves to be afraid of death. Is that right? I love that perspective. Yes, we're creating these fears and buying into those illusions of what they are. And that's making us scared of death. Absolutely. Yeah. So if we want to change that culturally, where would you recommend that we begin? What do you think is, a, is an appropriate time in our educational mm. process to be teaching ourselves that death is part of life, nothing to be afraid of, just part of the developmental process, like we drink water, we eat food, we eliminate, we have sexual activity, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and we die at a certain point. If you had a magic wand and were setting up the educational system for the United States, how would you address this? Yeah, no, first, you know, first I feel moved to say, you know, I applaud you and your perspective of how you've moved through these processes, and it really goes to show just how much work you've done on yourself, you know? So your relationship to fear or death 
is the result of the life you live, which seems to be a life of so much healing and growth. So as Abraham Maslow you know, pointed out, as people become more self-actualized and move up in development, their fear of death dissipates. You know, so, so that's an amazing and inspiring you know, route you've taken. As far well, as the thank you for that. I'll, yeah. I'll, com- I'll comment on that, and, and, and yeah. I, I appreciate your acknowledgement. Yes, I have done a lot of work on that. And the way I've done it, Johan, is both in my own personal therapy as well as taking various psychedelics, when I go and do what I call inner space travel, I look for fear. Mm. I want to find fear that's in the corners, under the rug, in the little recesses of my mind, and I want to face it and be with it. And what I have found when I go on that search over and over again is exactly what you said at the beginning of the interview, that every single fear that I've been able to find when I drill down ultimately is the fear of death. Mm. That's the bottom line. Mm. And so I have a little exercise that I do with myself that I'll share with you. Mm -hmm. When I get to that fear of death, drilling down, you know, I'm afraid of losing my this, I'm afraid of losing that, I'm afraid of something bad, etc. And then I go down and basically I'm afraid of dying. What I do is I lie flat on my back, I close my eyes, I breathe, and I let myself die. Mm. I just let go and die. Mm-hmm. I learned this by taking LSD because there's a time when you take a large enough dose of LSD, and I'm, I, you'll tell us more about the same thing with, with mushrooms, mm-hmm. but there's a time when you do that with LSD where it feels like you're dying, but you're really not. It's really what they call ego death. That's what Leary and mm-hmm. Alpert called it originally. It's like an mm-hmm. ego death. And if you fight it, you have a terrible time because the, <laughs> the medicine wants, to, wants it to happen. And that's where people get into weird trips. But if you just lay there and let it happen, you then go into a different form of consciousness, which I know you're aware of. So Mm. I do the same thing without any medicine whatsoever when I find that fear of death, Mm. and I just let myself die. So far, (laughs) after a few minutes, I come back and I'm still here. One day I may do the experiment and I'll be gone. But it's a fearless experiment, and it's a, great, a very interesting one that you might want to try sometime. I love it. No, I love the exercise, the approach. You know, I see he has this warrior attitude of willing to really face the fear, stay with it, and see it ultimately dissolve. Yes. Probably one of the biggest experiences I personally have had around looking at death on psychedelics was my first Burning Man. Took him out a good amount of mushrooms and went to the temple. And just really let lay there and kind of let myself dissolve. And as approaching this experience of death, what I felt these entities had told me is that death is the greatest day of your life, the day you die. There's this huge celebration of coming back home. It's as if you're coming one back with the network, as if we're part of this large internet and our being is coming back. So there's a huge rejoicing. And you're remembering who and what you were before you came into this life, with the, which is a lot of information. You know, it's, it's a much larger than this biography. And so it really helped me see that it's a major cause for celebration, actually, of kind of moving back into this hall. So that was one way my perspective shifts. But as you were kind of hinting, a lot of the big journeys I've had in psychedelics involve moving through that threshold. You know, as you probably know, the death rebirth experience is one of the most common archetypal patterns within psychedelics. So even at 18, I had to face this fear of like, I'm going to die right now. And for the times I've been able to relax into it, they've been some of the most meaningful times of my life. 
That being said, there's times on psychedelics crossing that threshold where I've pulled back. And that's been really hard because I'm just faced with a lot of fear that didn't really kind of dissolve. And so, you know, as much as I want to urge people to allow themselves to surrender, which is a big thing, willing to give everything up, I, I haven't been able to hit the mark 100% of the time. But when I have, it's been extremely valuable. Have, have you also experimented with LSD? Yeah, I love LSD. You do. Now, yeah. give us some comparisons. How would you compare a strong dose, let's say 300 micrograms of LSD, with a strong dose of uh, psilocybin? Similar, different? Tell us about that for yourself. Yeah. You know, I think if we had to put them side by side, there's more similarities and differences. You know, the chemical compounds are somewhat similar. It seems to be what happens in the brain is somewhat similar. That being said, LSD is more potent uh, by weight and lasts two to three times longer. So there are characteristics that are very important. What Albert Hoffman, you know, first synthesized psilocybin and created LSD, says, along with Terrence McKenna and somebody else to kind of research these kind of combinations, is that people tend to experience an encounter with more intelligent entities and voices. So direct, in you know, encounter with a consciousness that's alive and talking to you on psilocybin. While that kind of um, kind of experience of connecting with kind of, you could say spirits, guides, or other forms of intelligences is still possible in LSD, it's a little less common. So there seems to be more of a relationship and dialogue with a larger intelligence on psilocybin. That being said, I have found LSD to also be a little bit more creative. There's more flow, there's more confidence, there's more high voltage energy, um, and the aesthetics. You know, the beauty you can see is can be. Like splendorous bliss. I've cried so many times just looking at all the beauty on LSD. So very powerful medicine. Johan, people are listening to this, and some of them have already experimented, and we're preaching to the choir. Some of them have not had any experience whatsoever. One of the questions that comes up with people who haven't had experience whatsoever is, how do I know how much of this, if I want to take this psilocybin, how do I know how much to take? If I go to a doctor and he gives me a prescription, he can say, take 50 milligrams of this twice a day. Take 100 milligrams of this twice a day. Uh, take 100 milligrams twice a day for five days, etc., etc." I go to the pharmacy, I get a bottle, it tells me exactly what's in there. How does one do that when, first of all, we're dealing with something that isn't pharmaceutical, so you cannot accept perhaps in where you live in Oakland, maybe it's different, and you can teach us about that today. It's very important. Denver, mm -hmm. Colorado, soon San Francisco, and the parts of the state, if not the whole state of Oregon. But other than those areas, one cannot simply go in and buy an exact amount. So I want you to tell us, people are listening, how do they know how much to take? Give us some different dosages for different mm -hmm. effects, please. Yeah, just to get into that, you know, Probably the safest and easiest route is macrodosing, which is normally 0.1 grams of psilocybin mushrooms. And it can help your system build attunement with this compound, get used to the subtleties of the altered state. There's enormous benefits, including alleviating depression and anxiety. And it's a way to build a conscious relationship. You know, historically, indigenous people have seen these as plant teachers. It's a lifelong relationship you're starting to build. Um, as you can higher up the dose, maybe one to two grams if you're by yourself. Personally, I think the best route possible is working with a guide, somebody that's gone through the territory a lot, that can bring a deeper sense of safety, that can help you kind of explore yourself, that creates a container for this experience. 
the hard problem with that is accessibility, either cost or finding a guide. But as we keep moving forward and, and laws begin to relax, that'll become more and more accessible. So the guide would take care of a lot of the logistics, um, including a, a where to have this experience. The whole idea of set and setting would be taken care of and dosage would be taken care of. So I find that optimal is working with that. If you can't find a one-on-one -on -one guide within the community setting, like a ceremonial container, again, with experienced people. So they're there to see you and take care of you. And if you can't do it alone, I mean... You know, I, I would stay around the three-ish gram range, as, even though Terrence McKenna really proposes what he calls uh, the heroic dose of five dried grams in silent darkness. What I have seen in a few people is that that can be traumatic because you can buy into this idea of death and really believe it in the moment, and your body doesn't know the difference. And that's you're filled with fear, like as if you were in war, and that trauma can stay with you for a while. I, I've had some of those experiences. But if somebody's there and telling you you're actually safe, that you're okay, and then you're connected, those five hours in that trauma state can only take five minutes because you're, somebody's there to reassure you, which is helpful. So if there's no community sending or container, there's endless talks online. There's really good books. Um, one's called uh, Beyond the Narrow Life. A friend, Kai Ortigo, wrote that traces the whole trajectory of prep integration and, and the entire journey and serves as a guide, like a self-study guide course. There's mushroom courses online, michaelrisingfungi.com. Seth is doing it and teaches people how to grow mushrooms. What, um, what's the name of this friend of yours that wrote this recipe book? Yes, yeah, uh, Kyle Ortigo, Beyond the Narrow Life. is a PsyD, you know, went through um, different kind of psychedelic guide trainings. And it's there to serve as a manual for somebody going through the entire process alone. Because some people, that's what they're going to need to do because there's no accessibility of community for okay. them. So he recommends dosages in that book as well that people can Maybe. reference? Or how, do you uh, how do you feel about the dosages recommended by Arrowhead? Are you comfortable with their dosages? You know, it's been a few years since I've looked at Arrowhead. I definitely grew up as a teenager reading it a lot. Uh, what I would bring is this, the, the hard part of the experience that we're going to be wrestling against is fear. That's the thing that can get things out of hand really quickly. Good old fear right? again. Right? Yeah. So that's so dosage doesn't really matter as much as how much fear is going to come up because that's what's going to make the experience intolerable and it cause people to act out, whether harm to themselves or others. So as long as fear is mitigated and brought down through a, either a lot of preparation or having a lifeline, like somebody there just watching you and taking care of you, then yes. you can go higher up in dose. Most of us are recommending that people have a guide, but you also pointed out something that's part of reality, which is when you get a guide, whether it's a guide who's trained as a guide or a doctoral level person like yourself and myself, it's very expensive because a psilocybin trip is at least, what, six hours, four yes, to six hours. So, and yeah. if you have a booster, it could be six or eight, and an LSD trip can go eight, 10, or 12 hours. So you're talking about many hours of a professional's time, which is quite expensive, and that means only a certain percentage of the population are going to be uh, able to avail themselves of this. And that, that's a, a problem that we're going to have to face uh, as a profession going forward, no question. Um, if I may comment we, on that real quick. So I've been working with this group this last two years, and we released this project about five or six weeks ago, and it's a free online psychedelic center trading because we've been seeing the same problem of accessibility. So we've launched this free online four-hour course that trains people to sit for each other. So family members can sit with each other, best friends can sit with each other, and it goes through all the details of how to create a safe space for one another. How do, you, how do people access this free yeah. online course, Johan? Yeah. 
It's silohealth.co, so silo, P-S-I-L-O, health.co. And you go to the videos, and the entire curriculum is there for everybody to access freely. Repeat it again, please, for those who missed it, Silo Health. Say it. Silohealth.co, yes. Silohealth.co. Thank you very much. So we've come back again and again as we're talking to the place of fear. Fear is really a core element for all of us human beings that we need to deal with. And I think, you know, I don't think we can advocate as professionals enough for the importance of looking at fear, looking at fear as you pointed out, and so many of us are pointing out, I'm certainly in 100% agreement with you, that it's often the case that we want to look at fear with the help of another person, whether it's a guy trained in this wonderful program you're talking about or a professional person if you can afford it but to face the fears because to let them linger on in our consciousness means to walk around with the sword of Damocles over our heads at all times. And we never know when it's going to come down and take a little nick out of our, out of our necks, right? In what arena is it going to come down and do that? Mm-hmm. Now, we're, so we're talking about fear. We're talking about end of life. Let's talk about a happier topic now for a moment. What about, is psilocybin an aphrodisiac? And what can you tell us about sexual behavior on psilocybin? Mm-hmm. I love the topic. Recently, I've been doing a lot of talks on the intersection of sex and psychedelics. Because uh, I think next to psychedelics, the healing and working with sexual energy, like tantric approaches, is one of the most healing and empowering modalities. Both these experiences of sexuality and psychedelics, uh, a big characteristic they have of, of, of in common is boundary dissolution. The sense of self kind of dissolves and merges with another, another human intimately or the environment. They both fill us deeply with life force and a sense of empowerment. So there's a lot of deep intersection. What, what I've seen, for example, if we look at Sam Groff's work, you know, 60 years working in the field, he has his basic perinatal matrices, different places people move through in psychedelic experiences. And sexuality is a deep part of this death rebirth archetype that we go through. And he says they catalyze holotropic states of consciousness, states that organically move towards wholeness. And so for a lot of people, sexuality is repressed or there's a lot of trauma there. So as the system's trying to reorganize, naturally this life force tends to come up in the journeys itself that's there to help us become more whole, <coughs> feel more pleasure in life, and open our hearts ultimately. So it's more the effect on the entire being which then transfers into the sexual activity and the sexual behavior, not that the psilocybin is an aphrodisiac in and of itself. That's what you're I, telling us. I think our sexual essence is, is a to be part of our inherent nature. Like we're created out of sexual energy. You've coming out of the union of two beings. The entire erotic energy moves through the Big Bang to all of the cosmos. So it's a foundational part of who we are. And so that deep essence is finally given space to emerge in these psychedelic states. It sounds really like a wonderful medicine. You and I have had very positive experiences on this medicine, so naturally we're somewhat evangelical about it. Tell us now, though, about some of the negative side effects of psilocybin in your experience, and tell us who should not take psilocybin. Yeah, and I'm glad you're bringing in this to create more balance you know, I've had hundreds of journeys, and the more I do it, it's more shadow work. You know, just the universe is like you can hold more, you can take more. So um, the journeys can be create a lot of struggle. You know, you have to face whatever shadow is there, whether it's 
uh, shame, denial, anger, pain, grief, all of it. You have to be willing to accept the entire spectrum of the emotions to have the ecstasy, the love, the deep sense of empowerment. And so I come in with the willingness to walk through hell, even though many times it could be a walk through heaven. So it's really embracing whatever darkness is there. So it's not comfortable. It, it, for some people, it can be blissful fairly often, but I would go in expecting to engage with whatever experience is there. Um, with that being said, so it could be traumatic if it's not held well because the trauma is coming up, right? If the feel, a person feels abandoned by somebody around them, it can cause a lot of pain. If somebody's boundaries are crossed when they're very vulnerable state, it can create a lot of pain. So safety is first and foremost, the most important part of all this, a sense of safety physically, a sense of safety also emotionally, who I say probably, I do think eventually psychedelics are for everybody. But we don't have a society, the containers for that. So the people I think right now that we're not able to serve are people with schizophrenia and the people with like borderline personality disorder. And part of the reason being is because they can be so ungrounded and we don't want to give them more medicine that causes, you could say, ego dissolution where they might actually need ego strengthening. They might have to deepen a sense of self and a way to be functional in this world. I think because psychedelics create a holotropic state, a state that organically moves towards healing, it might be helpful for them, but they might need an entire team, an entire clinic that's available 24-7 as their psyche restructures and learns to heal itself. So I think we'll get there one day where it's for everybody, but right now we don't have the containers to hold space for everybody. Very interesting. Now, you mentioned in your talk that you've taken psilocybin hundreds of times. What can you tell us about frequency? How often can one safely take psilocybin? You know, just to, just to clear, I've done psychedelics in general hundreds of times. Psilocybin, maybe a hundred. Okay. Um, there's so many beautiful compounds to explore. What I can say is it seems pretty safe. There's no biotoxicity. What we know, it creates neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons, a hyperconnected brain state. The correlations between healing and psilocybin are huge. There's not much downsides. Uh, that being said, it's, it's different for each individual in terms of frequency and different for different times of people's lives. There might be a stretch of life where people really have the space and the resources to really explore themselves. You know, they could do it once a month and get a lot out of it. And they might go through a streak of like nine months, once in their life. But I think for most people, three or four times a year is plenty. That's tremendous growth, a lot of healing and a lot of awareness with plenty of time for um, integration. <clears throat> the point of psychedelic experiences is to have a good life. So if it's there and supporting the life you're living, that's good. If it's taking away and you're not able to show for your relationships, for your sense of purpose, for your job and stay in integrity, then that's the boundaries of you should not be taking more. Um, yeah, go for it. Um, what can you tell us <clears throat> about the relationship between psilocybin and cardiovascular function mm -hmm. with particular reference to heart rate and, uh, blood pressure? Huge thing to take into account is definitely the heart conditions. Um, because the experiences themselves can be stressful. You know, just as taking caffeine really speeds up your heart system, it's a little bit of a stimulant. And on top of that, you're, there's a willingness to face whatever emotions are there. What if a lot of fear comes up and somebody has a weaker heart and they can't handle it? So it's in the realm of possibility. Uh, so, you know, physical health matters tremendously. 
which, which is hard around this is like, what if somebody has cardiovascular problems because they're in an older age, you know, they're in their eighties or so, should they be denied this opportunity to have this thing that can give them deep freedom while they're still alive? You know, so that's one of those things where to also be with that kind of, you could say uh, population, it would have to be in a really good facility that they're being monitored very heavily and they can moderate dose very incrementally to get them to these states without actually moving beyond the window of tolerance. What I can share with you, Johan, is that uh, I interviewed Andrew Penn, who's a okay. researcher at the, you know, Andrew, at the University yeah. of California, okay. San Francisco. Okay. And he told me in their psilocybin studies, um, there were increases in heart rate and in blood pressure, but they were not outside of parameters that would require them to give uh, administer medicine in order to bring the blood pressure down or the heart rate down. So that was very encouraging, but also important to let the public know that there were in, uh, significant increases. They just, again, the increases weren't enough to warrant administration to bring the pressure or the heart rate down, but there were increases. And the reason I'm focusing in on this, Yahan, is that for many people, when their heart rate increases and their blood pressure increases, they're not aware that their heart rate and their blood pressure are increasing immediately, particularly the blood pressure. What they're aware of is something is changing. And unfortunately, the way we're trained in our culture is that when something feels like it's not right inside, we tend to look around to see what out there is causing it, right? In fact, that's the, that's the, uh, the, the genesis, really, of paranoia in a certain way, a certain kind of paranoia, right? I feel funny. Who's causing it out there? What needs to be done in this case is I feel funny inside. I need to look inside. Oh, I take my heart rate. I see it's normally 70 and it's running 95. So I've got an increase of heart rate. Maybe what I want to do is lay down, breathe gently, and bring my heart rate down instead of getting real scared. Because what I've run into over many, many years is a certain percentage of the population have a very negative uh, reaction to marijuana. And what I discovered is that the, a great deal of that negative reaction is because when you smoke marijuana, there's an initial spurt in both blood pressure and heart rate, and these people feel like something bad is happening, and they get paranoid, like what out there is happening, rather than realize it's the medicine and so on. And so we have that going on. And the same thing could go on with psilocybin, so that's why I'm bringing it into our conversation, so that if people do have this uptick, they recognize what's going on and they can be comfortable with it. Again, the importance of a guide, because a guide can point that out and say, hey, it's just your blood pressure that went up, your heart rate. It's going to be okay in 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. well, so, you know, it says so much about, again, our relationship to fear. And for a lot of us, it's instinctual. As soon as there's change anywhere within ourselves and the environment, we move to fear. There's a few people I've seen that have been on blood pressure medications. And after their psychedelic work, their blood pressure has gone down permanently because they worked a lot of that fear out in their body. So there, it's not like as if there's been large-scale you know, trials of this, but anecdotally, I have seen that happen, where lifelong tension, including blood pressure, actually goes down with the use of deep psychedelic work. That sounds like 
a good piece of research that needs to be done. Right on, right on that phenomenon alone, huh? Yeah, huge. Are there any other negative effects? What about uh, stomach upset, uh, mm. uh, vomiting, regurgitating, and so on uh, with mm. psilocybin? Do you run into that? Well, yeah, I'd say maybe about 1 in 12 people throw up and 1 in 7 feel nauseous and think they're going to throw up. So it's fairly common, but not as much as the ayahuasca, which tends to have a little bit more. And it's okay, you know, there's a, there's a cost, you know, to going in. Uh, personally, even after hundreds of journeys, I still feel fear going into the psychedelic experience. You know, I have to cross this threshold of a deep letting go. And for whatever reason, my system revolves around like, oh my God, it's happening again. This is really, because you're confronting the deep mystery, the unknown. You're really surrendering all of control. And I think we have a fear responsibility to crossing this threshold of the great mystery unknown. That's why the fear of death is there. But the more we can deepen into relaxation of trust in the all and willing to kind of surrender that maybe the unknown isn't bad, the more smoothly that process, that initiation through that threshold goes. It, it really comes back to fear of death. When I hear you talking, it's all about dying. And uh, in fact, I'm working on a book right now. My next book is called Grateful Death. Wow. End of, end of Life wow. Healing with Psychedelics. And, uh, Beautiful. Thank you. I'm going to be uh, I'm going to be contacting you because if there are people that you've been working with who might be willing to be interviewed on their end of life dealing with anxiety and depression, it would be extremely helpful if you would refer because we want to get as many people as possible uh, interviewed for this book. I love the work you're doing. Good. Thank you. Um, let's make believe we ended the interview right now. We're not, but let's make believe we did. Okay, mm -hmm. and then you go off into the other room where you are, mm -hmm. and you're thinking about the interview, and you say to yourself, gee, I just thought of a couple of things that I wish I would have said. Mm -hmm. So what I want to do now is take a pause for you, and instead of really leaving, use the pause to think about what else would you like to share with our listeners that we may have missed so far. No, thank you. I love the question. And I think in many ways, what you just did is similar to a practice I've had that's really helped my life stay in order. And it is coming to peace that there is some level of conclusion to everything, including our life. You know, since 15, for some reason, I was obsessed or fascinated with death. And daily contemplation of that has really had me focus on what's important in each day. If I die tomorrow, could I die with peace? What do I need to do in my actual life to die with peace? Do I need to say I love you to somebody? Do I need to live in a certain kind of integrity? Do I need to carry out a certain kind of project, right? So that sense of like endness helps me really make the most of all I can out of this experience. So there'll be more peace when I finally leave. And so something huge that happened for me at 18 after I crossed through the threshold of death and felt connected to God and the all, it said the most important thing in life is love by a lot miles after love is learning. And with these two values in that order, everything else is almost absurd and insignificant compared to these two pools of the cosmos. And so I think as much as we can do to live a life that's full of love, that we're here to embody it, and then love actually is the most intelligent force in the cosmos by far. It's always pointing in the right direction. And we keep learning. So we're growing from our experience, from each other, learning about the world. We're very satisfied and full. And part of love is having a sense of purpose. How do I show up love in the world? So as long as we keep doing all these things, which I feel you're doing, that's why you have more peace with this experience of dying. 
the greater that transition is, and we're getting the most out of this experience and feeling really connected to everything. You know, learning is a kind of intimacy. The more I know about you, the closer I feel to you. The more I learn about the universe, the closer I feel about the universe. Same with myself. The more self-awareness I have, the more I feel connected to myself. And as long as we're moving into this deeper kind of connection, you know, there's ease, satisfaction, pleasure, and ultimately I think that fear that we have inside dissipates. Yahan, I'm going to change the topic completely, but I feel like it's very connected. Yeah. Your last name, Kamsa Zeda. Mm-hmm. Beautiful name, beautiful name. Tell us about that name. Where does it come from? What does it mean? Yeah, thanks. Khamsazad is Persian. You pronounce, pronounce it correctly for me. Khamsazadeh. 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 Thank you so much. Thanks. It seems to be that it means like five brothers. So my grandfather, who I never met from Iran, was actually part of a nomadic tribe. He, he was... That's their lifestyle. It was a tribal and it was nomadic, moving fa- back and forth. Um, and he split off from the tribe as a teenager and he had five brothers and he started his own family, but he wanted to remember that he was part of this family group, this five brothers. So it translates to Hamses, five you know, brothers. Uh, so I'm half Persian and half Mexican. The Mexican side is also Aztec roots and kind of uh, Spanish Portuguese. So it's kind of a deep intertwining of this half of the world, the Western world, and the more of the Middle East. So name itself, Jahan, means universe slash world. So, yeah. So it's universe of five brothers. <laughs> if I put those together with the middle name being Del Castillo, you know, kind of Spanish from the castle. Yeah. A universe, a castle of the universe with five brothers. So yeah. he actually made up the name of the five <laughs> brothers. Is That's that right? We- that's what we've everybody in the family has come to. Absolutely. That, well, well, that's very beautiful. And how did this Persian man meet this Mexican woman? Yeah, my father came in the seventies from Iran. My mom from Mexico, both poor, and they were actually illegal here for about ten years. And they were working hard to send money back to their families that were going through hard economic systems, partly because of U.S. kind of oppression on both countries. And both being immigrants, having no sense of security, feeling like aliens and not belonging, they connected and kind of were each other's support systems. They met each other in a class trying to learn English in Los Angeles. English is a second language, ESL, huh? For sure, absolutely. Oh, that is really beautiful. That's a very beautiful story. Thank you. Are they still alive? They're still alive together, uh, Tucson, Arizona. And something beautiful has been able to share this work for them. So I've held about 10 journeys for my father. So he's oh. about, he's, yeah, so it was new for him. I've held about three for my mother. And something the psychedelics told me is like, you've done a lot of this personal work and now like, now go try to heal your family. They never got to have these experiences available. And especially for my father, it's been some of the most important life experiences he's ever had. He's dramatically changed. And he, he didn't take psychedelics till the 60s because of me. And it's amazing to see how quickly somebody can grow. I am so glad I asked you about this. This is a wonderful, wonderful conclusion to our interview. Thank you so much for being with us today. Such an honor. And thank you all, dear listeners, for being with us on today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Go to the website, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Check out our archives. There are other exciting people like Yahan that you're going to want to listen to. And subscribe. Become part of our community. Spread the word about Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. We're doing good work. Look forward to being with you again. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health 
is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 